Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, what? let me break here. What we, what we want to feel and sense from Paul is what's his attitude and heart toward Jesus Christ? He said, what, whatever was gained to me, all that stuff I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's stop there for a moment. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus. He said, what do I need to do to be saved? Go to heaven. Jesus said, sell everything. He was rich. He said, sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor, whatever. Then come follow me. And he didn't do that. Why? Because he didn't want to lose it. Uh, he wasn't willing to, to let it go. And he said, but he said, I count all this stuff as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that, that's in, in the Greek, that's master, Jesus, my master, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Now, we, we talk a lot about invite Jesus into our hearts, but Paul's talking about that's that. And that is true. We do invite him. Uh, and the Holy Spirit to, to be in our hearts when we get saved. But he's talking about that I may be found in him. How does that work? How am I in him? Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Would you say the, 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 the word faith? One, two, three. Faith. Through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, we've been looking at that, that for this is our third week now. And what I want to do is I want to draw some more distinctions uh, on the subject of who has my heart. Who really has my heart? The Apostle Paul wrote the letter we're studying to the believers in a city called Philippi. For those of you who are here, uh, perhaps for the first time, and you're not aware of what we've been studying. But until he had an, until Paul had an, an unusual experience on the road to Damascus one day, we could, I think, could conclude from the study of his letters that Paul was a skeptic about the claims of Christ. The things that Jesus said about himself, the things that Jesus spoke and even the prophets of old spoke about him and, and the people that were around him spoke about him, I think it would be fair to say, this might surprise us, that the Apostle Paul was basically a skeptic when it came to the claims of Jesus Christ. But he had an experience on the road to Damascus. And even though Paul was a highly educated man, even though he was considered to be a committed Jew, uh, he was uh, highly religious uh, when it came to believing in God. He wasn't an atheist. He believed in God. Asking him to put his faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and believe that he was also the long-awaited Messiah that had been prophesied through the Old Testament, well, we'd have to say, no, he wasn't there. We would have to call Paul a skeptic when it came to the claims of Jesus. Now, let's put on the screen here just a working definition of skeptic. It's just one of the things. There's different varieties. But a skeptic is a person who instinctively or habitually doubts, questions, or disagrees with assertions or generally accepted conclusions. Like the Bible. A skeptic would say, eh, I don't know. Not so sure about that. Not so sure that that's inspired. Not so sure that it's truthful. Not so sure that I can put my, my confidence in it. That, that is a skeptical uh, perspective on God's Word. We can be a skeptic about a lot of things. It's a person who questions things. And I think that we all really have a bit of skeptic in all of us, especially Especially as we grow in life, you know, we got we we've got some young ones that uh, that come to church here, and some little babies that are growing up, and some that are in nursery now, whatever. And as as they begin to experience life, 
just like all of us have, we get burned by somebody. Somebody really stings us. Somebody takes us to the cleaners. Somebody that we were putting some trust in or some confidence in. It may have been a relationship or it may have been a, a promise that somebody said. Or, yeah, I'll return that next week. Or, yeah, I know I owe you $500 and I'll have it to you by. And, and, or someone who said, I, I love you and I don't want to live my life without you. And all of a sudden they've got somebody else on the side. All kinds of ways that we get burned, so to speak, in life. And so we learn, we learn to be a bit, uh, not to be so trusting. And we, we become a bit skeptical. It's sort of like watching the old westerns and the old, uh, the medicine man, you know, he's got his little, little wagon and it says, uh, buy, buy, buy a, a, a bottle of this special tonic and it will take care of everything from flea bites to pneumonia. Whatever you got that ails you, uh, get one of these. You gotta have one of these bottles of my magical elixir. And they buy it, and guess what? The, 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 the mosquitoes still itch. And uh, the pneumonia is still there to deal with. And, 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 and so they got, it was a scam. It was a scam. And uh, hacking is a scam. We see it in our world today. There's this dishonesty. And so in all of us, we have this safeguard. It's like to be careful out there. So skepticism, to some extent, is learning to be careful. But it's something that can be more than that if we're not careful. It teaches us... Uh, this school of hard knocks, not to be so trusting and taking everything at face value. And there's nothing wrong with that, as long as we don't get stuck there and come to understand that, guess what? Even though we've all been scammed and we've all been disappointed and we've all been hurt from time to time, still there's this, this fact that some things work. Some things are true. Some things have a way of panning out the way we thought they would. And in most cases, if you've got a serious infection and the doctor does a test and he finds out what the bacteria is, there's a very good chance that he can prescribe or she can prescribe an antibiotic. And if you take it and if you follow instructions and with God's blessing, all good things come from the Father above, it works. There are things in this life that work. But if we're not careful, we can have a skeptical attitude about all kinds of things. And a person who's skeptical says, well, what if the doctor didn't get the right bacteria thing? He didn't prescribe the right. And I don't know if I'm going to, I'm not going to buy it. I might waste my money. It might not make me feel better. And, and we're skeptical about life. And then pretty soon you find yourself getting worse and worse. Sometimes, you know, people could die because they didn't take an antibiotic that works. For many years now, families and friends have gotten together to play a friendly little game. It's called, I doubt it. Anybody play that, that game? Huh? Come on now. Oh, you're, you're, but, oh, oh, that's right. The Wesleyans don't play cards. That's right. You never played the card game, I doubt it. Well, I have. And at some point in the game, you know, they're laying down these, these cards and they're saying what the number is, I think, or whatever it is. And uh, the idea is to pull a fast one on somebody. It's to scam them. It's to scam your, 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 the people you're playing with. And at some point, at any point, once a person lays a card down, uh, according to the number it's supposed to be, it may not be that number. And if nobody calls them on it, they get away with it. And so if you want to call them on it, you just holler out, I doubt it. And they got to turn the card over and you were either lying or you were telling the truth. It's a funny little game. Most of us have had it, even though you didn't admit to it. (laughs) Listen, no one wants to be a sucker. No one wants to be scammed by somebody. But if we take a pass on something that could save our lives because we just learned to be skeptical about things, that would be really bad. Just ask Homer Simpson. Uh Uh-oh. There really is a God. Now what? Uh-oh. I was skeptic. Now, I didn't find that cartoon like that. I put that line down there because uh, you know Hollywood never would have put that line down there. So, so, honest broker Homer Simpson is saying, you know what? We can be skeptical to a fault if we're not careful. And sometimes we can blow it on, a, on an important and a good call. Now, I've abused Homer's picture uh, 
but it shows the horror on his face of what Jesus was talking about. And I, I, I read this last week, but I want to read it again because it's sobering. Matthew seven twenty one. The horror on his face is dealing with someone who's standing before the Lord, we would say at the great white throne judgment, so to speak. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, meaning I'm a follower of yours, I'm a Christian, uh, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he, she, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, Homer, I never knew you. I don't care what you said to other people. I don't even care the things that you did, so to speak. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow. That's perhaps one of, if not the most sobering scripture in the entire Bible. That someone could live their life, however long it is, stand before God and have him say, in spite of what you thought, I never knew you. Think about it. The world's greatest, so far, proponent of faith in Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul. As far as we know, there wasn't anybody any better at it than the Apostle Paul had doubts. Paul had doubts about the claims of Jesus. And he was living out his life on the basis of his doubts, which led him to unbelief. Paul absolutely did not believe in Jesus. I mean, he literally decided on the basis of doubt to move to unbelief in Jesus And he considered those who did believe in Jesus as people that were stupid or uninformed. They were scammed. They were scammed by a a phony, hypocritical leader who really was not truthful and was not believable. But it's even worse than that. He said, not only do I not believe in him, and I don't know, I think the people that believe in him are, are foolish... They're dangerous, and so I'm going to spend my life taking them out. And so he hauled them to jail. He helped, uh, he, he helped uh, with the stoning of Christians. And he was basically trying to, to annihilate people who believed in Jesus Christ because he had decided he doubted the claims of Christ and it had moved from doubt to unbelief. So if doubt is not properly managed it can lead us to dangerous consequences. That's a point for us this morning. If doubt is not properly managed, it can lead us to dangerous consequences. Some of us in this room, and some of us that no doubt are listening to this message uh, online, are dealing with doubt right now. You are. So how do you know that? Well, just hang on a second. You may not have decided to choose unbelief yet, but you could be closer to it than you think because of doubt. And we all know someone, sometimes in our very own homes, who are doubters. So a question this morning would be, how can we help them? How can we help people who have doubts? So let me show you a little uh, one-minute video from Os Guinness, who wrote a book about doubt. And he makes a really good point about the difference between doubt and unbelief. Uh, Take note of it, if you would. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Oz, it's great to have you on the One Minute Apologist. I really appreciate your work, especially the stuff that you've done on doubt. I know it's been very impactful in my own life, and I think it would be helpful for our audience just to hear from your heart. How can a Christian deal with doubt? Well, I wrote the book because I met so many Christians who doubted and felt guilty. But if you understand doubt, it's a matter of being in two minds. So it's a halfway stage between faith on the one hand, and disbelief on the other. So it's a halfway stage that needs to be resolved. One goes back to faith or on to disbelief. But doubt in itself is not a bad thing. The question is, what's caused it? 
and one needs to talk to the person? Is it a lack of the foundations in their belief? Is it some sort of scar psychologically or whatever? Find out the source of the doubt, address it, so that faith can go back to being strong and a matter of faith again, and not like a coin which will spin and spin and spin and then come down heads or tails. You've got to go back to faith, not on to disbelief. All right, so you know me, so I had to get out my trusty little drawing pen, and uh, let's put on there, uh, this is what he just described. Am I still on testing? You have belief, and then you have don't believe on the far, far, far side. And right in the middle is what he's talking about is something called doubt. And he says doubt must be managed. Doubt must be dealt with. And what we want as believers, when we occasionally have doubt, is to, to search out the appropriate answers to the doubt, the foundation for where the doubt arose, so that we can go back strongly to faith and not the other direction to unbelief. So I believe that everybody, Christians, non-Christians, have or experience doubt occasionally. But doubt does not necessarily mean unbelief. It could be but it also could go back the other way. I'm fading in and out. Are we working with it, Tim, or is it, to, is it me? Or is it, if I, do I need to move this? Are we doing okay? He doesn't know. Okay, so I'll just keep talking? All right. Uh, he doesn't know how to tell me is what he, he knows probably, but he doesn't know how to tell me. So hopefully this little line helps us put doubt in its proper place. Now, I think it would be safe to conclude, again, that everyone has doubts from time to time about a lot of things. Uh, For example, I I can tell you this, uh, I I think 100%, I never have boarded a plane without doubting the mechanical fitness of the airplane and without doubting the proficiency of the pilot. But so far in my life, doubt has not forced me to get off the plane. Doubt, the doubt was there. I said, I wonder if this guy knows or this lady knows what they're doing. I wonder if they really know how to fly. How many hours have they flown? Have they flown this particular plane very often? Uh, do they know how to land? Are, are they okay in the wind? What if there's a storm? What if lightning, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm doubting, oh boy, what, you know, and that, you know, is, is, is the, is the wheel up to date? And we got it all worked out. Uh, and, and it's like, is, does this, you know, stuff breaks. Stuff, stuff breaks. It's like, how do, how do, how does the pilot even know that this plane is going to, that engine's going to burn all the way to the destination? How do we know that? And there's a little bit of doubt creeps in, but it, but so far in my life, it has not moved me to unbelief. That's over here. Unbelief would say, get off the plane and fast. That's unbelief. So I don't believe this. I don't believe this for one second, but I did have some doubts. It seems to me that Paul doubted who Jesus claimed to be and ultimately made a decision that he wasn't going to believe a word of it. He moved from doubt to I don't believe it. But something happened that changed all of that. God in his sovereignty. Can you say that word? One, two, three. Sovereignty. One, two, three. Sovereignty. God in his, means he's totally in charge. Whether we understand it, agree with it or not, he's totally in charge. And it's totally appropriate for God to do whatever he chooses to do in life, in our lives or whatever. God in his sovereignty, totally in charge. That means he knows things and he wills things that we don't always understand. In his sovereignty, he chose Paul on the road to Damascus to do something, to meet Jesus personally. That was God. God chose to to intersect Paul's life. This person that had, had made a decision on the basis of doubt, and he had his good reasons, he was a smart guy. On the basis of doubt, he moved to unbelief and he started killing Christians and persecuting them. 
and knowing Jesus personally on the road to Damascus changed Paul's skepticism and his disbelief to belief. Let me read it for you. You know the story, but it will, it will encourage all of us to hear it again. Acts 9. Now Saul, he was, that was his name before uh, the Lord changed it to Paul. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that, that's, that's the early word for Christians, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. I would be too if I'd been knocked to the ground, couldn't see when I got up, and the whole, wouldn't you? Said, he's praying, he's, he's reaching out to God big time. And he had seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. That's the sovereignty of God, see? He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. Have you been baptized? And he took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And that's the story. So Paul, the doubter, who turned into a non-believer in Jesus and a persecutor of those who followed him, had a personal experience with Jesus Christ that turned his skepticism into incredible faith. Once he met Jesus, here's what he says. (laughs) We already read it. Now he's met Jesus. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as lost for the sake of Jesus. (laughs) More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish there, it's excrement. It's the word for excrement. You know, our, our young adults just got back from northern Minnesota. And one of the stories, I mean, you're going to be hearing all kinds of stories. They know where I'm headed with this, don't you? You know exactly how I'm going to use this illustration. They had to climb over this huge beaver dam that was primarily built on excrement, beaver poo. We might say. And is it really smelly? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's really bad. So, so he said, I count all the stuff that I gave up to, to put my faith in Jesus Christ, 
which the young ruler said, I'm not giving it up. I got too much stuff. I worked too hard, been long and hard for this. Not going to give it up that easy. He said, no, all of that and more. He said, it's like beaver poo. It's like excrement. It means nothing to me. In fact, it is smelly, stinky, and not worth the effort compared to the glory and the beauty of this marvelous Savior, Jesus Christ, that I may gain Christ. You know, if, well, let me go on. And may be found in him. Remember I mentioned that earlier? We invite Jesus into our hearts, but this says that I may be found in him. The in him, how does that work? How, how, do, how do believers get to be in Jesus? Well, it's the same way that you as a non-Costco member get to go into the Costco store as long as you are with a member. So in this member, in your relationship with this member, you're bona fide, at least for one visit at Costco. That's how you get in. You're in your member. You're in your friend. You're in them symbolically. And so you get the pass. And so when we put, when we place our trust and faith and confidence in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross to save us, we are entering heaven. We are entering the family of God in Him. Do you see that symbolism? It's, that's how we're in Him. And it says that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, meaning I can't, I couldn't do it. I, I don't care how many picket signs you want to walk around outside of Costco. I don't care how many tears, crocodile tears you and I shed. I need to get in there. They've got just what I need and I need it today. And I, and I only have this much money. I can't buy it for that price anyplace else. You've got to let me in and let me buy this in here. It does not matter what you say, how hard you plead or whatever. You don't get in unless you're in one of these members. And he said, so all the stuff that I was trying to do, obey the Jewish law, oh, uh, uh, study all of the uh, high, high and mighty principles, attend all of the services, uh, follow all of the sacrifices, do everything possible that anybody would expect of a highly religious person that's called works of the law. He said, I, I'm, I'm, I get in Costco, I get in heaven having a righteousness that's Jesus' righteousness, not my own, which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. There's that F word again. Faith. Don't let your mind go to the other. The F word, faith. That's a more important than what, how the, wor- the world uses the F word. Amen? This faith word, faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from, from God on the basis of faith. Now that, that flies right in the face of doubt and skepticism. See? That's this where the rubber meets the road. Everybody has doubt once in a while. Hopefully the doubt gets managed. It gets managed by godly parents. It gets managed by godly Sunday school teachers. It gets managed by Christian school teachers, Brian. It gets managed by, by youth workers and, 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 and the Kalas of the world. It gets managed by pastors who preach and teach through the Word of God. This is how we manage our faith and, 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 and uh, deal with doubt that comes into our lives from time to time. That I may know, and that word know last week we talked about is gnosis. It means experientially knowing. Not just reading about somebody, but it's hanging out with somebody, spending time with somebody, asking questions about where'd you come from? Where, when were you born? What kind of a training did you have? What schools did you go to? Who do you know that I know? Where, where have you lived in this world? What are the places that you've been? Uh, what are the, what, have, what things have you learned about life? That I, you, you experience Jesus. And you experience the power. That Greek word there is the word from which we get dynamite. And the power of his resurrection. Take, take, take a tour boat around the island of Hawaii. 
the big island. And you will find out what others found out when they got too close. That's a powerful force at work that blew lava chunks out and nearly sank a tour boat. It's a, it's a dynamic power. Can you, can you picture the explosiveness? This is symbolic. The explosiveness of what happened in that tomb when the devil thought he had Jesus down and he was going to heel grind Jesus called death. And the dynamite power of God Almighty in Jesus Christ who is God exploded that lab all over the place. It's dynamic power, he says. This dynamic power of his resurrection, of, of, of defeating death. And the fellowship, that word really is talking about sharing in it. You and I, through our faith in Jesus Christ, have opportunity to share in that power over sin. That's why some of the things that beset us and, and, and held us back in our lives before Jesus, now all of a sudden we are able to be overcomers because we have His power available working in us and through us. Amen? Which brings us a fellowship of his sufferings. Guess what? You, we sang it. Josh, you had us sing it. You, you had us sing about the sufferings that we endure. That we will always endure as believers in Jesus Christ. There will always be moments and situations of suffering. Some suffering is loneliness. Some suffering is opposition and oppression. Some suffering is physical illness. Some suffering is uh, financial uh, hardship. Uh, all kinds of suffering. He said, we're, we're going to suffer in this world, and especially because of our faith in Jesus Christ. There will always be some suffering coming against us from the enemy. And, and, and so he, said, he goes on and says, sufferings which bring us to God. Do, are you, have you ever thought about your suffering this way? That if it had not been for one of the hardest places in your life, you and I would not have called out to God as often as we did or as passionately as we do. And I'm pretty sure you get any one of our team that went to northern Minnesota and they will tell you whether they said it out loud or whether they said it under their breath or silently in their own heart and mind. God, you got to help me with this because I don't think I can do this. This is too much. I don't know how to do this. I can't, my muscles are physically not strong enough to carry this canoe. I don't swim that strongly. I, 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 I'm allergic to poison ivy. I could die. I, you know, I've got all this stuff and we begin to cry out the suffering. This spiritual suffering we will suffer because we're making a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in this world and we come against the enemy and there's suffering. Being conformed, that's my loss, is like his loss. When, when you and I are being conformed to Jesus Christ, he lost everything. Everything for us. And so when we suffer and when we lose things, that suffering not only brings us closer to God, but it causes us to emulate what, how Jesus lived. We are be, being like him. And that's a great thing. And that's why, uh, you know, we are closest to God when we're suffering because we need Him the most. And by the way, that's, I think, how the missionary survives. That's how the missionary who would like to enjoy the bubble that we all enjoy in Marion, Indiana, and we haul ourselves over to some place in Asia where you don't have a decent uh, indoor plumbing and you don't have access to certain things there are no mcdonald's down the street and and people may harass you and you may feel alone and a stranger and all these things and the missionaries are saying yeah but i'm being conformed to to christ and his death it's a little bit of dying for the sake of christ in order not that i may earn because it's not earned it's, it's grace given 
by what Jesus has already done for us, but in order that I may attain or uh, have the privilege of walking into the Costco, have the privilege of entering into heaven, that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now that resurrection from the dead initially, you know, as I read the scriptures, I think could refer to the rapture. Now, we got lots of intellectual ideas about what the rapture is, so, I don't, I, so don't bother sending me your emails about the rapture. But I, but because I, I'll just tell you what I, I'm, I'm pretty plain and simple, and it reads pretty simple to me. And if you ever want to know, I'll tell you. But I think that initially it could be the rapture, a reference to the rapture, but ultimately to heaven and for all eternity. He said that I may attain this by suffering, by giving up. I, I am actually getting. And this is all about managing doubt that can come into all of our lives from time to time. Now, March the 10th, 1989. 1989. A preacher wrote a letter to his unbelieving father. His father was a skeptic. His father was a really bright fellow. His father had a very, very, uh, let's put it this way. I believe we would say he just had a really high IQ. And he knew how to ask hard questions. And so this, in 1989, this preacher wrote a letter to his unbelieving skeptic father. And he says, Father, you know that I'm a Christian. For 14 years I've been a Christian. And I've gone to the universities and the seminaries. And I've studied and I've got the degrees. And now I'm preaching at a church. And Father, I love you. I care about you. So I I, I wonder if you would allow me. His father, he lives in Minnesota. His father lives in Florida. He's retired. And he says, Father, would would you permit me to engage you in dialogue about the doubt and skepticism you have about the faith that means everything to me. And so his father is an inquisitive man. And so he said, sure, son. He said, I'll I'll be glad to start up a, a dialogue with you, correspondence by letters. And so he says, dad, uh, I've, I've uh, told you everything that I know to tell you from, the, from my experience with God, from the training that I've taken in school, from my experiences as a pastor leading a church. It's a, a big church. Not that that makes a difference, but it's a lot of responsibility and a lot of experiences that he's had. And he answered all the questions that his father shot at him. They were hard questions. You know, things about um, the problem of evil. Explain to me why little kids have to get cancer. And uh, I walk through the cancer ward at Children's Hospital and I see these little ones fighting for their lives. What did they do to deserve that? What about the problem of people that have never heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ? How are you going to wrestle that to the ground, son? Explain that to me. Tell me about all the people that I have been exposed to who call themselves Christians and go to church every Sunday, but I worked with them over the years. I'm now retired, but I worked with them, and they're scoundrels. They're cheaters. They're hypocrites. Explain that to me, son. See, he's a doubter. He's a skeptic. And he was asking his son all these hard questions. And how do you know the Bible's true? Prove that to me, that the Bible's true. After it was all said and done, his father complimented him in a letter. And he said, son, I want to thank you for all of the letters that we've exchanged back and forth. And he said, you're a good son. And he said, you have addressed every one of the questions that I have thrown at you. And you've answered them appropriately. And I get it. But at the end of the day, so to speak, he says, though you've answered all of my challenges and questions, what if there's a mistake somewhere? What if you've made a mistake or somebody's made a mistake and this all turns out to be a scam and it's not true? And he said, son, I, I just can't take the chance. I just am not willing to take the chance. So his son wrote back and he said, Dad, I appreciate you. You're an, you're an honest broker. 
You've been, you've been honest with me in all of your questions. And you, and you've been honest to say that I answered some of those things well enough that it made sense to you and you accepted it. But you're still not ready to take a chance. And he said, you need to understand something about this faith thing, dad. He said, picture a train in your mind. Picture a train track running in your mind. And picture that train track having an end at some point. Only the sad thing is that the train track ends at a cliff. That there's a place where the train track stops and at the end of it there's a cliff. And anybody that's on that train who goes over that cliff are going to die. And there are people that are on the train that are trying to warn the the engineer, slow it down. Trying to warn people, this is what you need to do. Somehow, and somehow, you need to you need to do something different before the train gets to the end of that track. And he said, "Dad, that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to help you with your doubt and your skepticism, but your decision to wait and play safe is a decision." not to trust. And you could just as easily go over that cliff as you could escape it. Well, it's interesting. On January the 21st, 1992, I was going to read this to you verbatim, word for word. And I I forgot the book. I rushed out of the house so fast this morning that I forgot the book. So I'm having to tell it to you. But On January the 21st, 1992, that's almost three years later after he started this dialogue dealing with doubt and skepticism, his father's doubts about Christianity changed. And he wrote his son, and he said, Son, well, I did it. I did it. I have asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. I have said to God that I believe in him that I am sorry for my sin. I understand it. I understand what Jesus did on the cross. I understand it was something that I could not do myself. And I have done something that was very hard for me to do. And I have dealt with my doubt. And instead of living in unbelief, like Paul had been, he said, I actually experienced Christ in my life. And those of us in this room and those who are listening by the internet will know this, this to be a truth, that those of us who have truly experienced, that gnosis experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ, here's here's what you've found out. I found it out and you found it out. And that's this. From the moment that we put our faith in Christ and not in our doubt and our skepticism is the moment that our confidence in that faith began to grow. And every day that we have lived longer and longer in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the confidence that we have in the difference between doubt and and disbelief has gone farther and farther away from our lives, not just because of habit, but because Christ is living in us. And the more we experience him, the more confidence we have in who he is. So this is a great story after three years of a son pleading with his father. Not all stories of doubt lead this to, to this kind of a conclusion. Some of them don't. Some of them stay in unbelief. And people die that way. They cross over that way. For some, the story ends with Homer Simpson's look. Uh oh. There really is a God. Now what? Who has your heart? Intellect? Degrees? Talents? Your portfolio? Toys? Hobbies? Children? Grandchildren? Paul says that knowing Jesus is like finding a great treasure. Remember Matthew 13? Okay, everybody take a deep breath. I've, put, I've, I've successfully put about 30% of the audience to sleep. I think. I'm making that up. I'm sure that's not true. It's probably 50%. All right. Listen to what he says. The kingdom, if you take a deep breath, you'll catch the rest of this because I'm almost finished. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. A man or a woman gives everything they own to possess this great treasure of knowing Jesus and finding eternal life. How long does it take to help someone we care about move from doubt to faith? See, I don't believe doubt's sin. Unbelief is sin. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe doubt's sin. I believe it's what we do with doubt. Amen? It's what we do with it. We manage it according to God's word. How long does it take to help someone we care about move from doubt to faith? <laughs> I don't know. For this pastor, it took almost three years. Dealing with challenging, difficult questions about human suffering, God's fairness, the hypocrisy of the so-called Christians, and more. Now listen, some of us have children or grandchildren who have been taught the right things about faith. But they haven't yet responded as they should. And doubt is pushing them toward unbelief. You know what I'm talking about. Almost everybody in the pew that's got any kind of family members has thought about this. Hey, they were raised right. We had them in Sunday school. We taught them the principles of God. And they have yet to make a decision for Jesus. In fact, not only that, they're living like the devil. And we don't know what to do. What are we going to do? That's what this sermon's about. What are we going to do? I just told you the facts. Atheism is on the rise with the young ones. One in 11 are engaged in the programs of the church. It's getting worse and worse and worse. So if we don't talk about it, shame on us. What do we do? No easy answers. But here's a bit of encouragement from the desiring God folks that may help. And I'm going to put this on the screen. I think we've got the uh, uh, URL, the address of Desiring God. We got, did, did we have you put that on there, John? I can't remember. It, it's www.desiringgod.org. www.desiringgod.org. That's where I get these 12 principles here. I'm going to, I don't have time to talk about them, but here's, here's what you do. If you've got a child, a grandchild, or somebody that's young that's doubting, that's questioning. I don't know if I believe the Bible. I, I, in fact, I don't believe the Bible. I, I, I don't believe all the stuff that the, that, that, that the, uh, uh, the church is telling me. I, I'm not even sure I agree with all the things that my mom and dad or my, you know, my, my loved ones are telling me. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe all that stuff. Let, let me tell you something. You, you, you wonder, why, why doesn't the church just fill up quickly if you're preaching God's word, is because we have a generation of people who don't believe that God's word is inspired and it is worth trusting. So if they don't trust that the Bible is true, why would they want to sit here and listen to me? Do you get it? So we have to pray a little harder. We have to work a little harder. And we have to stand firm for the things that work. So point them to Christ. Always point your loved ones to Christ, even if they're walking in doubt and unbelief even. Point them to Jesus. Pray. Number three, acknowledge that something's wrong. You can't hide it. You can't shovel it under the, under the rug. You need to sit down and talk with people as much as they will allow us and say, what? not condemn, not challenge them. Just say, what's wrong? What, what, what is it about the Bible that causes you to have such doubt? What is it about the Christian faith? What is it about the church that causes you to not want to be here? What is it that's in there? Talk to me so that we can understand how better to pray. Number four, don't expect them to be Christ-like because they're not going to be. They're not Christ-like. We don't even know for sure if they're saved or not because if, we're, if they're saved, they, they should be acting like it. So they might be saved and been backslidden a bit. I don't know. I'm not the judge of that, and you aren't either. But, but don't expect them to be Christ-like. They're not. Their language isn't going to be right. Their their habits are not going to be right. They're not going to pick up their room. They're going to come in smelling like like beer. Uh, they're going to smell like weed. 
or cigarettes or what they're going to they're going to talk about unsavory friends they're going they're going to do that stuff why because they doubt their their doubt has not been dealt with they need to be welcomed home if they if if they've run off if they've gotten independent and say you can't make me do that i'm not i'm not going to tell you i don't want to hear it anymore i'm out of here listen that, that that's sad and we pray but listen there always ought to be a welcome at home prodigal son amen we, that doesn't mean that we just lay down like a like a, a rug mat, and they walk all over us. But we need to have open arms, welcome them home. A home is a great place for confused people to be. Number five, or six, plead with them more than you rebuke them. Plead, don't rebuke. Number seven, connect them to believers who have better access to them. Sometimes they don't want to hear it from the preacher. Maybe they're willing to hear it from grandpa. Or maybe they're willing to hear it from the youth pastor. Or maybe they're willing to hear it from a Christian worker down where they have a job, a part-time job or something. And, and network and, and, and encourage those people to influence them by pleading with them about the concerns they have. Number eight, respect their friends. Boy, that, that, say, don't say that. When they're... <laughs> That's, that's awful. Don't expect me to like the friends that my kids or my grandkids are hanging out with that caused the problem in the first place as near as I can tell. But it doesn't help by beating on their friends. The fact of the matter is, those friends are being impacted negatively probably by your kid. And those bad friends need Christ as much as your kid needs Christ. Amen? So you can't, it doesn't, it doesn't help to beat on their friends. That doesn't mean you don't be careful. Doesn't mean you don't give cautions and that sort of thing. But gotta be careful with it. Number nine, email them, text them. If they are being distant to us, uh, stay engaged with them at some level. There's stories out here already. I mean, I'm looking back and I'm seeing a connect. It's like, I, I remember there's, there's a young man that uh, just went through a little hard searching time in his life, but today he's on the mission field. You know what I'm talking about. They, you know, we stay connected with them and, and, and we, we, we remain patient with them when we try to, to, to work through some of these areas of doubt or concern or whatever. Number 10, take them to lunch. Got to spend time with them. They may not want to go to lunch with us, but find ways to spend some time, some one-on-one or two-on-two time or whatever to hang with them. It, it, it makes them feel as though you really do care. They don't have to, to be in church every Sunday for you to really care. Number 11, take an interest in their pursuits. Listen to their hearts. What do you feel God's designed you to do? What do you, I, well, maybe you don't believe in God. So what do you think you're supposed to do? What do you think you're good at? What are you thinking about training toward? What are you going to major in? What are you going to do? What, what are you drawn to? And then number 12, it's kind of where we started to number one. Always point them to Christ. If you get on that website, there's a lot of great commentary, better than what I had time to share with you on these 12 things. Things that we can do when there are people in our lives, especially young people, who are dealing with doubt and frustration. So this morning... Or late last night, I didn't see it till early this morning. I'll close with this illustration. I got a text from my son-in-law who lives in Minnesota. We have three beautiful grandchildren and our oldest daughter is married to him and they live in, in Minneapolis. And you can't see it, but I didn't have time to get it on the screen. But uh, And Cynthia hasn't even seen this, I don't think. Uh, but it's on a little flip card. And it's, it was written on a postcard. And uh, they shot a picture of it. And, and this is what it says. My son-in-law's name is Wiley, as in Wiley, Coyote, Wiley. Okay? And this is what, this is what it says. Apparently, I don't even remember writing this. I know I did because it's my handwriting. But this is what it says. They shot a picture of this and, and said, uh, the text said, we just found this. In other words, he got it years ago. And then they just rediscovered it going through some old files, papers, whatever. Here's what it says. Uh, uh, It's it's written to Wiley, my new son-in-law. Wiley, you demonstrate a marvelous Christ-like disposition. This will endear you 
to many people you can impact for Christ. Keep your home fixed in the Lord, and God will hold you in the difficult places. I believe in you. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Take good care of my little girl. Signed, Tim. I don't remember writing that. I sort of vaguely do now that I had it in remembrance. But, but what, I, what I saw coming through there is what you can do and what you need to do at every point that you can. And that is always be pointing even the hard cases back to Jesus. Even like the preacher who said it didn't seem like it was working and every time I answered the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, the problem of people in other lands that had never heard about Jesus, all these issues of cancer for on kids and all kinds of things, I have tried to wrestle those through with you and still you are not moving from doubt to faith. Keep pointing them to Jesus because you don't know when the Damascus experience may happen in the life of somebody you care about. Remember this in closing. Doubt is not disbelief. It's once removed. Doubt is not disbelief. It's once removed from that. Don't let your doubts... And I'm talking to believers now. You say, you mean believers have doubts? Of course we do. Of course, of course the enemy doesn't want us to be, believe everything hook, line, and sink. There's a lot of things in God's Word that I don't understand. Anybody resonate with that? Lots of stuff in there that in the, if we were meant to understand it, it's either because we didn't study it well enough or God didn't mean for us to understand it on this side. We don't have to understand everything. We just need to understand the basics. Amen? How to get to heaven. We need Christ. We're sinners. We need to ask Jesus to come into our hearts so that we can rest in Him and get into Costco. That's how it works. Okay? Don't let your doubts lead you closer to death and farther away from the life of faith in the only one who can save us. And as the gentleman said in the New Testament, I believe. Help my unbelief. I get these doubts once in a while. If these doubts help my unbelief. And for the true believer, it'll be okay. Amen? Let's stand. I, I've, I felt like I need... I told you this was a, an important subject to me because we, we have young people who are interfacing with other young people. And sadly, sometimes interfacing with teachers, professors... Uh, people who are giving them uh, the wrong the wrong word about things, and we want our kids and our grandkids, especially, to be able to to know how to process. And if they get confused, let's be patient with them. Let's encourage them. This is a message of encouragement, not discouragement. This, by the way, is why we have other alternatives, like a Christian school. That's why we want to be careful what teachers we hire. We want to be very careful who the leaders are who teach our kids here in this Christian school. That's why we want to be careful who counsels at our, our, our counseling center. A lot of people can counsel. You can go all over the country and find a counseling center somewhere. But are they giving good Christian counsel? That's why we need to be careful and praying uh, for our team. And same thing for our staff. This matters. And it matters even more so in this age that we're living because a lot of kids are going down to unbelief. And that's sad. So Lord Jesus, I pray in closing that you would first of all shore up those of us who are working with individuals who are struggling, doubt. And they may slip over into, slip over that cliff, slip over into something called unbelief. And God forbid they should die like that that they should cross over like that. And so it, it, it really wearies our hearts, Lord, and we need your help to show us. And today, I, I didn't give them all the answers they need. There aren't easy answers to that. 
But these are some ways that we can try to encourage ourselves in the good uh, fight and encourage those that we're dealing with. So give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us help to know how to reach into the lives of these folks that are struggling, that have been pounded by the enemy of our faith. And help us to be strong and help our kids through our youth group and through our families in the life of this church to be able to get through those challenging times when the devil comes after us. And then, Father, for somebody here today that has never asked Jesus Christ to live in their hearts so that they can rest in Him and find eternal life and until we get there to find the power, the dynamite power to live this life in obedience to You even though it will always entail some suffering. Help them to do it now before it's too late, before that train runs to the end of the tracks. Because a decision not to decide is a decision made in unbelief. Help them to reach out to Jesus today, to ask Him to save them, to admit their sinful ways, and to say, I need a Savior, and I put my trust, and it's by faith, not by the law, not by works, not by what man can figure out. It's by faith. And in that faith then, Lord, you grow us in great confidence. We praise you. We love you. And all God's people said together, amen and praise the Lord.